Section 16 of The Confidence Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M.B. The Confidence Man, His Masquerade by Herman Melville. Chapter 37. The Mystical Master Introduces the Practical Disciple. Both the subject and the interlocutor, replied the stranger, rising, and waiting the return towards him of a promenader, that moment turning at the further end of his walk. Egbert, said he, calling. Egbert, a well-dressed, commercial-looking gentleman of about thirty, responded in a way strikingly deferential, and in a moment stood near, in the attitude less of an equal companion, apparently, than a confidential follower. This, said the stranger, taking Egbert by the hand and leading him to the cosmopolitan, this is Egbert, a disciple. I wish you to know, Egbert. Egbert was the first among mankind to reduce to practice the principles of Mark Winsome, principles previously accounted as less adapted to life than the closet. Egbert, turning to the disciple, who, with seeming modesty, a little shrank under these compliments. Egbert, this, with a salute towards the cosmopolitan, is, like all of us, a stranger. I wish you, Egbert, to know this brother stranger. Be communicative with him, particularly if, by anything hitherto dropped, his curiosity has been roused as to the precise nature of my philosophy. I trust you will not leave such curiosity ungratified. You, Egbert, by simply setting forth your practice, can do more to enlighten one as to my theory than I myself can by mere speech. Indeed, it is by you that I myself best understand myself. For to every philosophy are certain rear parts, very important parts, and these, like the rear of one's head, are best seen by reflection. Now, as in a glass, you, Egbert, in your life, reflect to me the more important part of my system. He who approves you approves the philosophy of Mark Winsome. Though portions of this harangue may perhaps in the phraseology seem self-complacent, yet no trace of self-complacency was perceptible in the speaker's manner, which throughout was plain, unassuming, dignified, and manly. The teacher and prophet seemed to lurk more in the idea, so to speak, than in the mere bearing of him who was the vehicle of it. Sir, said the cosmopolitan, who seemed not a little interested in this new aspect of matters, you speak of a certain philosophy, and a more or less occult one it may be, and hint of its bearing upon practical life. Pray tell me if the study of this philosophy tends to the same formation of character with the experiences of the world. It does, and that is the test of its truth, for any philosophy that, being in operation contradictory to the ways of the world, tends to produce a character at odds with it. Such a philosophy must necessarily be but a cheat and a dream. You a little surprise me, answered the cosmopolitan, for, from an occasional profundity in you, and also from your allusions to a profound work on the theology of Plato, it would seem but natural to surmise that, if you are the originator of any philosophy, it must needs so partake of the abstruse as to exalt it above the comparatively vile uses of life. No uncommon mistake with regard to me, rejoined the other, then meekly standing like a Raphael. If still in golden accents old Memnon murmurs his riddle, 
none the less does the balance sheet of every man's ledger unriddle the profit or loss of life sir with calm energy man came into the world not to sit down and muse not to befog himself with vain subtleties but to gird up his loins and go to work mystery is in the morning and mystery in the night and the beauty of mystery is everywhere but still the plain truth remains that mouth and purse must be filled if hitherto you have supposed me a visionary be undeceived i am no one-idea at one either no more than the seers before me was not seneca a usurer bacon a courtier and swedenborg though with one eye on the invisible did he not keep the other on the main chance along with whatever else it may be given to me to be i am a man of serviceable knowledge and a man of the world know me for such and as for my disciple here turning towards him if you look to find any soft utopianisms and last year's sunsets in him i smile to think how he will set you right the doctrines i have taught him will i trust lead him neither to the madhouse nor the poorhouse as so many other doctrines have served credulous sticklers furthermore glancing upon him paternally egbert is both my disciple and my poet for poetry is not a thing of ink and rhyme but of thought and act and in the latter way is by any one to be found anywhere when in useful action sought in a word my disciple here is a thriving young merchant a practical poet in the west india trade there presenting egbert's hand to the cosmopolitan i join you and leave you with which words and without bowing the master withdrew chapter thirty eight the disciple unbends and consents to act a social part in the master's presence the disciple had stood as one not ignorant of his place modesty was in his expression with a sort of reverential depression but the presence of the superior withdrawn he seemed lively to shoot up erect from beneath it like one of those wire men from a toy snuff-box he was as before said a young man of about thirty his countenance was of that neuter sort which in repose is neither prepossessing nor disagreeable so that it seemed quite uncertain how he would turn out his dress was neat with just enough of the mode to save it from the reproach of originality in which general respect though with the readjustment of details his costume seemed modelled upon his master's but upon the whole he was to all appearances the last person in the world that one would take for the disciple of any transcendental philosophy though indeed something about his sharp nose and shaved chin seemed to hint that if mysticism as a lesson ever came his way he might with the characteristic knack of a true new englander turn even so profitless a thing to some profitable account well said he now familiarly seating himself in the vacated chair what do you think of mark sublime fellow ain't he that each member of the human guild is worthy respect my friend rejoined the cosmopolitan is a fact which no admirer of that guild will question but that in view of higher natures the word sublime so frequently applied to them can without confusion be also applied to man is a point which man will decide for himself though indeed if he decide it in the affirmative it is not for me to object but i am curious to know more of that philosophy of which at present i have but inklings you its first disciple among men it seems are peculiarly qualified to expound it 
Have you any objections to begin now? Not at all, squaring himself to the table. Where shall I begin? At first principles? You remember that it was in a practical way that you were represented as being fitted for the clear exposition. Now, what you call first principles I have in some things found to be more or less vague. Permit me, then, in a plain way, to suppose some common case in real life, and that done, I would like you to tell me how you, the practical disciple of the philosophy I wish to know about, would, in that case, conduct. A business-like view? Propose the case. Uh, not only the case, but the persons. The case is this. Uh, there are two friends, friends from childhood, bosom friends, one of whom, for the first time, being in need, for the first time, seeks a loan from the other, who, so far as fortune goes, is more than competent to grant it. And the persons are to be you and I, you, the friend from whom the loan is sought, I, the friend who seeks it, you, the disciple of the philosophy in question, I, a common man, with no more philosophy than to know that when I am comfortably warm I don't feel cold, and when I have the ague I shake. Mind now, you must work up your imagination, and as much as possible talk and behave just as if the case supposed were a fact. For brevity, you shall call me Frank, and I will call you Charlie. Are you agreed? Perfectly. You begin. The cosmopolitan paused a moment, then, assuming a serious and careworn air, suitable to the part to be enacted, addressed his hypothesized friend. Chapter 39. The Hypothetical Friends Charlie, I am going to put confidence in you. You always have, and with reason. What is it, Frank? Charlie, I am in want, urgent want, of money. Well, that's not well. But it will be well, Charlie, if you loan me a hundred dollars. I would not ask this of you, only my need is sore, and you and I have so long shared hearts and minds together, however unequally on my side, that nothing remains to prove our friendship than, with some inequality on my side, to share purses. You will do me the favor, won't you? Favor? What do you mean by asking me to do you a favor? Why, Charlie, you never used to talk so. Because, Frank, you, on your side, never used to talk so. But won't you loan me the money? No, Frank. Why? Because my rule forbids. I give away money, but never loan it. And, of course, the man who calls himself my friend is above receiving alms. The negotiation of a loan is a business transaction, and I will transact no business with a friend. What a friend is, he is socially and intellectually, and I rate social and intellectual friendship too high to degrade it on either side into a pecuniary makeshift. To be sure, there are, and I have, what is called business friends, that is, commercial acquaintances, very convenient persons, but I draw a red ink line between them and my friends in the true sense, my friends social and intellectual. In brief, a true friend has nothing to do with loans. He should have a soul above loans. Loans are such unfriendly accommodations as are to be had from the soulless corporation of a bank, by giving the regular security and paying the regular discount. 
an unfriendly accommodation do those words go together handsomely like the poor farmer's team of an old man and a cow not handsomely but to the purpose look frank a loan of money on interest is a sale of money on credit to sell a thing on credit may be an accommodation but where is the friendliness few men in their senses except operators borrow money on interest except upon a necessity akin to starvation well now where is the friendliness of my letting a starving man have say the money's worth of a barrel of flour upon the condition that on a given day he shall let me have the money's worth of a barrel and a half of flour especially if i add this further proviso that if he fail to do so i shall then to secure to myself the money's worth of my barrel and his half barrel put his heart up at public auction and as it is cruel to part families throw in his wife's and children's i understand with a pathetic shudder but even did it come to that such a step on the creditor's part let us for the honor of human nature hope were less the intention than the contingency but frank a contingency not unprovided for in the taking beforehand of due securities still charlie was not the loan in the first place a friend's act and the auction in the last place an enemy's act don't you see the enmity lies couched in the friendship just as the ruin in the relief i must be very stupid today charlie but really i can't understand this excuse me my dear friend but it strikes me that in going into the philosophy of the subject you go somewhat out of your depth so said the incautious waiter out to the ocean but the ocean replied it is just the other way my wet friend and drowned him that charlie is a fable about as unjust to the ocean as some of aesop's are to the animals the ocean is a magnanimous element and would scorn to assassinate a poor fellow let alone taunting him in the act but i don't understand what you say about enmity couched in friendship and ruin in relief i will illustrate frank the needy man is a train slipped off the rail he who loans him money on interest is the one who by way of accommodation helps get the train back to where it belongs but then by way of making all square and a little more telegraphs to an agent thirty miles ahead by a precipice to throw just there on his account a beam across the track your needy man's principal and interest friend is i say again a friend with an enmity in reserve no no my dear friend no interest for me i i scorn interest well charlie none need you charge loan me without interest that would be alms again alms if the sum borrowed is returned yes an alms not of the principal but the interest well i am in sore need so i will not decline the alms seeing that it is you charlie gratefully will i accept the alms of the interest no humiliation between friends now how in the refined view of friendship can you suffer yourself to talk so my dear frank it pains me for though i am not of the sour mind of solomon that in the hour of need a stranger is better than a brother yet i entirely agree with my sublime master who in his essay on friendship says so nobly that if he want a terrestrial convenience not to his friend celestial or friend social or intellectual would he go no 
for his terrestrial convenience, to his friend terrestrial, or humbler business friend, he goes. Very lucidly he adds the reason, because, for the superior nature which on no account can ever descend to do good, to be annoyed with requests to do it when the inferior one, which by no instruction can ever rise above that capacity, stands always inclined to it. This is unsuitable. Then I will not consider you as my friend Celestial, but as the other. It racks me to come to that. But, to oblige you, I'll do it. We are business friends. Business is business. You want to negotiate a loan? Very good. On what paper? Will you pay three percent a month? Where is your security? Surely you will not exact those formalities from your old schoolmate, him with whom you have so often sauntered down the groves of Academe, discoursing of the beauty of virtue and the grace that is in kindliness, and all for so paltry a sum. Security? Our being fellow academics and friends from childhood up is security. Pardon me, my dear Frank, our being fellow academics is the worst of securities, while our having been friends from childhood up is just no security at all. You forget we are now business friends. And you on your side forget, Charlie, that as your business friend I can give you no security, my need being so sore that I cannot get an endorser. No endorser, then? No business loan. Uh, Since then, Charlie, neither as the one nor the other sort of friend you have defined can I prevail with you. How if, combining the two, I see you as both? Are you centaur? Well, when all is said, then, what good have I of your friendship? Regard it in what light you will. The good which is in the philosophy of Mark Winsome, as reduced to practice by a practical disciple. And why don't you add, much good may the philosophy of Mark Winsome do me? Ah, turning invokingly, what is friendship if it be not the helping hand and the feeling heart, the good Samaritan pouring out at need the purse as the vial? Now, my dear Frank, don't be childish. Through tears never did man see his way in the dark. I should hold you unworthy that sincere friendship I bear you, could I think that friendship in the ideal is too lofty for you to conceive. And let me tell you, my dear Frank, that you would seriously shake the foundations of our love if ever again you should repeat the present scene. The philosophy which is mine in the strongest way teaches plain dealing. Let me then now, as at the most suitable time, candidly disclose certain circumstances you seem in ignorance of. Though our friendship began in boyhood, think not that, on my side at least, it began injudiciously. Boys are little men, it is said. You I juvenilely picked out for my friend for your favorable points at the time, not the least of which were your good manners, handsome dress, and your parents' rank and repute of wealth. In short, like any grown man, boy though I was, I went into the market and chose me my mutton not for its leanness, but its fatness. In other words, there seemed in you, the schoolboy who always had silver in his pocket, a reasonable probability that you would never stand in lean need of fat succor. And if my early impression has not been verified by the event, it is only because of the caprice of fortune producing a fallibility of human expectations, however discreet. 
Oh, that I should listen to this cold-blooded disclosure. A little cold blood in your ardent veins, my dear Frank, wouldn't do you any harm, let me tell you. Cold-blooded? You say that because my disclosure seems to involve a vile prudence on my side. But not so. My reason for choosing you in part for the points I have mentioned was solely with a view of preserving inviolate the delicacy of the connection. For, do but think of it, what more distressing to delicate friendship formed early than your friends eventually in manhood dropping in of a rainy night for his little loan of five dollars or so. Can delicate friendship stand that? And on the other side, would delicate friendship, so long as it retained its delicacy, do that? Would you not instinctively say of your dripping friend in the entry, I have been deceived, fraudulently deceived in this man. He is no true friend that, in platonic love, to demand love rights. And rights, doubly rights, they are, cruel Charlie. Now take it how you will, heed well how, by too importunately claiming those rights, as you call them, you shake those foundations I hinted of. For though, as it turns out, I in my early friendship built me a fair house on a poor site, yet such pains and costs have I lavished on that house that, after all, it is dear to me. No, I would not lose the sweet boon of your friendship, Frank, but beware. And of what? Of being in need? Oh, Charlie, you talk not to a god, a being who in himself holds his own estate, but to a man who, being a man, is the sport of fate's wind and wave, and who mounts towards heaven or sinks towards hell as the billows roll him in trough or on crest. Tut, Frank, man is no such poor devil as that comes to, no poor drifting seaweed of the universe. Man has a soul, which, if he will, puts him beyond fortune's finger and the future's spite. Don't whine like fortune's whipped dog, Frank, or by the heart of a true friend, I will cut ye. Cut me you have already, cruel Charlie, and to the quick. Call to mind the days we went nutting, the times we walked in the woods, arms wreathed about each other, showing trunks invined like the trees. Oh, Charlie! Pish, we were boys. Then lucky the fate of the firstborn of Egypt, cold in the grave ere maturity struck them with a sharper frost. Charlie! Fie, you're a girl. Help, help, Charlie. I want help. Help? To say nothing of the friend, there is something wrong about the man who wants help. There is somewhere a defect, a want, in brief, a need, a crying need somewhere about that man. So there is, Charlie. Help, help. How foolish a cry, when to implore help is itself the proof of undesert of it. Oh, this all along is not you, Charlie, but some ventriloquist who usurps your larynx. It is Mark Winsome that speaks, not Charlie. If so, thank heaven, the voice of Mark Winsome is not alien but congenial to my larynx. If the philosophy of that illustrious teacher find little response among mankind at large, it is less that they do not possess teachable tempers than because they are so unfortunate as not to have natures predisposed to accord with him. 
"'Welcome that compliment to humanity!' exclaimed Frank with energy. "'The truer, because unintended. And long in this respect may humanity remain what you affirm it. And long it will, since humanity, inwardly feeling how subject it is to straits, and hence how precious is help, will, for selfishness' sake, if no other, long postpone ratifying a philosophy that banishes help from the world. But Charlie, Charlie, speak as you used to, tell me you will help me. Were the case reversed, not less freely would I loan you the money than you would ask me to loan it. I ask? I ask a loan? Frank, by this hand, under no circumstances would I accept a loan, though without asking pressed on me. The experience of China Aster might warn me. And what was that? Not very unlike the experience of the man that built himself a palace of moonbeams, and when the moon set, was surprised that his palace vanished with it. I will tell you about China Aster. I wish I could do so in my own words, but unhappily the original storyteller has so tyrannized over me that it is quite impossible for me to repeat his incidents without sliding into his style. I forewarn you of this, that you may not think me so maudlin as in some parts the story would seem to make its narrator. It is too bad that any intellect, especially in so small a matter, should have such power to impose itself upon another, against its best exerted will, too. However, it is satisfaction to know that the main moral, to which all tends, I fully approve. But to begin. End of section 16